Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's Easter program features Donald Gray Barnhouse. Because of his strong Philadelphia connection, most people think of Barnhouse as part of the Northeastern Evangelical Establishment. But in fact, he was born in California. After high school, Barnhouse enrolled in Biola, Bible Institute of Los Angeles. He studied doctrine with Reuben Archer Torrey, and he did personal work with Thomas Corwin Horton. Torrey took a personal interest in Barnhouse, allowing him to borrow his personal study notes and copy whatever he wanted. But by overcommitting to ministry work, Barnhouse failed to complete all of his note-taking assignments for graduation. Torrey refused to let him graduate with his class and required him to finish his notebook assignments and graduate belatedly. Barnhouse graduated and went on to Princeton Seminary with only a Bible Institute certificate rather than a college degree. Later on, one of Barnhouse's professors at Princeton Seminary said, Donald Barnhouse got his theology from Biola, not Princeton. Today's message stems from Mark 16:9, covering the resurrection. take as my text this morning, Mark chapter 16 and verse 9, where we read that when Jesus Christ had arisen, he appeared early on the first day of the week first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Now, if we're to understand the tremendous spiritual blessing that is involved in the fact that the Lord God Almighty on the day of resurrection first appeared to this woman out of whom he had cast out seven demons. We'll have to run the film in slow motion in order that we may see the details and realize what is involved in this appearance. On the Tuesday night of that week, the Lord Jesus Christ had eaten the Last Supper with his disciples. It has now been established from the Dead Sea Scrolls that the Paschal meal was on Tuesday night. The problem in the Middle Ages rose out of the fact that the calendar had been practically lost and was 30 or 40 days off kilter through the fact that nobody knew about leap year and the necessity of adding a day. And thus it was that there was this great confusion. And the men who read the Bible were ignorant. And when it says they hastened to take Jesus' body down, in order to bury it before the Sabbath, they said Sabbath is Saturday, so he died on Friday, not realizing there were two Sabbaths that week, the regular Saturday Sabbath and the Sabbath that moved through the week as Christmas is on Tuesday one year and Thursday another. So that year, Thursday, was the great Sabbath, the Sabbath of the Passover. So you have Wednesday, the death of Christ, Thursday, the great Sabbath, Friday a work day when the stores were open, and Saturday another Sabbath, and the Lord Jesus rising from the dead after three days and three nights, and coming forth from the tomb approximately what we would call Saturday evening, and at sunset on the Friday evening the weekly Sabbath began, and Luke tells us that the women remained quiet on that Saturday and that they went out to the tomb, they planned to go out to the tomb early on the first day of the week. But in the meantime, the Lord had risen from the dead. Now, as I say, the time of the resurrection was undoubtedly shortly after sunset. 
And during those three nights and three days, the Lord Jesus had been in paradise, as he said to the thief. And we know from many passages that paradise was then situated in hell. And the Lord Jesus descended into hell, and there, not in torment in hell. When I'm lecturing on the life after death, I say, if it'll help you to understand, call it East Hell and West Hell, if you like. And between the two, there was a great gulf fixed. There was torment in hell where Cain was, and paradise in hell where Abel was. Abraham had gone there, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Solomon, and John the Baptist, and the believing thief who died at the time of Christ, for he said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And it's difficult to conceive the joy of that Old Testament multitude. They knew that their hopes had not been deceived. Now we must not speculate on the details. We know from Matthew's account that a few of the resurrected ones were given their new bodies and that they walked in the streets of Jerusalem appearing visibly to many and then that they were taken to heaven in order to give our faith the guarantee that the redemption of our bodies is also a sure and a certain thing because in heaven today in addition to the body of Jesus Christ, a literal, tangible body that ate broiled fish and honey, there is this little group of the first fruits. Christ, of course, himself is in one sense the first fruits, but with him this handful of believers who already have their bodies and who were taken into heaven on that day. We too shall live. Though worms shall destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Now, I'm not concerned with the harmonization of the different accounts of the resurrection. There are differences, and there are agreements, but they are in such accord that it is impossible that they should have been created, made up separately. And there is such variance that it's impossible that they should have been made up through a conspiracy of deceit. So the logical conclusion is, these four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were not made up at all. They are the result of eyewitness accounts, which always vary, as eyewitness accounts always do, and they can be easily harmonized. Now, before we proceed to Christ's divine revelation of himself, let's look at, for a moment at this woman who was chosen to be the recipient of such wonderful truth, Mary Magdalene. Oh, how tradition has added to the biblical narrative in order to smirch her name. All that the Bible has to say about her, the only thing the Bible has to say about her is that she was the object of the grace of Christ and that out of her he cast seven demons. There's not another line. And without any grounds whatsoever, she became associated in the minds of people of tradition with many, she became associated with the unnamed woman in Luke 7, who anointed the feet of Jesus. Now we know one other thing about her, namely that she gave money to support the Lord Jesus and his disciples during the time of his ministry. If she had been a prostitute, it's very interesting to note that Christ was financially supported by the savings of a woman who had earned her money in such a way. It's very interesting to see that the Lord God Almighty would come and somebody would say, well, why would he do that? Well, do you think that your heart is any different from hers? 
Do you think that there's first-class sin and second-class sin and third-class sin and that some money is tainted and that some money is not? Our whole difficulty is that too frequently we're inclined to make standards of human goodness and try to measure things as though certain men's uh, could touch something without contamination while that other people contaminated something that they touched. But at all events we read in Luke chapter 8 Jesus went on through the cities and villages preaching and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God and the twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out who provided for him out of their means and many manuscripts say who provided for them and that's why the revision has changed it who provided for them and now we begin to come to the secret of our text because there's a great secret involved in why the Lord Jesus should have appeared first to her why did he now, if we, if, if we accept the tradition that this Mary was the woman who anointed the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ in the house of Simon the Pharisee, we will remember that the Lord spoke to his host a parable concerning the ratio of love to forgiveness. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, at least $6,000 by our present standards, and the other 50, $600. When they could not pay, he forgave them both. And Jesus said, now which of them will love him the more? And Simon judged correctly that the one who was forgiven the most would love the most. And Christ agreed with him. And applied the parable to the woman, saying that she had had many sins and that they had all been forgiven and that she loved much. Now whether or not we identify Mary with this woman, we may indeed identify the ratio of love. She had been demon-possessed. And we need not go into whatever the horror was of being possessed by seven demons. But she met the Lord Jesus Christ. She was cleansed and she was freed and she was forgiven. And all of her love, her faith, and her hope turned to Christ. Henceforth, everything that she had and everything that she was was transformed. Now, we must not forget that she was a Jewess and that she lived before Pentecost, before the cross, and that the Holy Spirit was not dwelling in her. As he said to, to all the disciples, the Holy Spirit dwelleth with you and he shall be in you. But nevertheless, God was working in her life. And in her faith and her hope and her love, these three, because we're going to see that the secret of Christ's appearance is involved in one of these things. She had been standing outside of Pilate's hall while Jesus was being tried. She heard the roars of the crowd crying, crucify him. She saw him led forth, carrying his cross, and she saw him fall under its weight and saw Simon the Cyrenian come to carry the cross on to Calvary. Now, two of the Gospels say they watched from far off, but John tells us that as the day wore on and the hours of suffering drew to a close, the women, all three of them named Mary, were standing by the cross. 
There was Mary, Christ's mother, and Mary, his aunt, the wife of Cleopas, and then our Mary, Mary Magdalene. Now, the Lord God announced at the time that Jesus was presented in the temple when he was but a baby, he announced through Simon that a sword would pierce the soul of Mary, his mother. And I'm absolutely sure that a sword pierced the heart of Mary Magdalene also. Yes, these women suffered. Mary, his mother, and her sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene, who loved Jesus Christ with all of the pure love and devotion of a woman whom, out of whom he had cast seven demons and who had come to know and have faith in him, to have hope in him, and to love him. Now when the Lord Jesus Christ died, something died in the hearts of these women also. Faith died. We know that they lost their faith in that moment because in Luke 24 it tells us that when Mary and Cleopas were in the house in Jerusalem and people came running in and said, the tomb is open, he's arisen, that Cleopas and Mary said, come on, let's go home. And we know that hope died because when Jesus met these two on the road to Emmaus, they said, we had trusted that it would have been he who had redeemed Israel. And they had had hope that he would deliver Israel from Rome. So we have the evidence that when Jesus Christ died, faith died and hope died. But love did not die. Love never faileth. And it was love that kept Mary Magdalene near the body of the Lord Jesus even after her faith and her hope were gone. Now Matthew records that Mary Magdalene followed the little group headed by Joseph of Arimathea that carried the body of Christ from the cross to the tomb. For we read in Matthew 27, 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the sepulcher. So when the body of Christ is taken from the cross, Mary Magdalene walked on somewhere behind. She and this other woman clinging to each other, weeping, weeping, weeping. And then the great Passover Sabbath, the Thursday Sabbath passed. And on Friday, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate on this day between the two Sabbaths. And they came to Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember how this imposter said while he was still alive, after three days and nights I'll rise again. Therefore order the sepulcher to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And this last fraud will be worse than the first. And the Bible tells us that Mary Magdalene watched as the stone was sealed and the guard was placed. Yes, they placed a guard to keep God, the Lord Jesus Christ, from coming back to life. And then the Saturday Sabbath came to its close, and Mary Magdalene, just after sundown, went to see the sepulcher. This we read in Matthew 28, 1, where it says, In the end of the Sabbaths, plural, and that should have kept people from thinking that Jesus died on Good Friday, but at the end of the Sabbaths, plural, and as it began to turn towards the first day of the week, sundown, and we read, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. 
for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Now we can imagine the consternation and the bewilderment of these women. I'm quite sure that if someone had said, what did you see? They wouldn't have said, we saw angels. They saw two people. They would have said two men. They had been weeping. They'd never seen angels before. They did not know. And evidently, they glanced at the tomb and then rushed off to Jerusalem to tell the disciples. And when they came, they gave their message. And John tells us, we can imagine the scene. The women came in the door. The tomb is open. His body's been taken away. Out they dash. Peter is first out the door. John comes after him. John is young, catches up with him, passes him. And at that same moment, Cleopas and Mary say, well, let's go home. And they started for Emmaus even after this world-shaking news that the resurrection had taken place. And then it was that Mary turned around and started once more on her trip out to the tomb. How many round trips does this make for this woman? And this counts in what we're about to see. One on Wednesday, one or two on Friday, and now two and maybe three trips between sunset and the great dark of the morning before dawn. She didn't travel as fast as they did, and by the time she got back to the tomb again, Peter and John had been there and had gone. What was it that brought her back? Certainly not faith, certainly not hope. It was nothing but her love. She did not yet dare to believe that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, even though she had heard the testimony of the angel. Because you see, when faith and hope are dead, Love had remained alive, and that was all that there was alive in this woman's heart at that time. Her heart had the love after faith and hope were gone. And instead of faith and hope, there had come confusion and bewilderment. Mark has told us, or John has told us, that Mary stood weeping at the tomb. This was after she'd been there, heard the angel say that he was gone, seen that the tomb was empty, she was still weeping. Mark had told us that the Lord appeared first to Mary, and John tells us the story, as it were, in slow motion. And we read, as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the foot. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Now there's still no faith, and there is still no hope. There is nothing but love. And she replies, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. She thought that some unknown people had removed the dead body. She hadn't the faintest idea that he was alive. And at that moment, her face was turned toward the tomb, and her back was turned toward Christ, who was standing behind her without her knowledge. And at this moment, we read, she turned round and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now, very probably it was still, we know that it was still a long while before sunrise, and it was very dark. But now she has her back to the tomb, and her face is turned toward a form that she does not recognize, and that she's not interested in knowing. And so Jesus came and spoke to her first, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Oh, what tenderness in Christ. Why are you weeping? And I don't care who you are and what your tears may be. He comes to you and says, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? She knew. He knew, of course. 
And the Lord knows what causes weeping in our hearts. He knows what it is when our sorrows come, but he's interested. Don't forget that fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is very interested in the details of your sorrow and the details of your suffering. He knoweth our frame and he remembereth that we're dust. Now, she did not recognize his voice. We do not know why. Perhaps it was a part of the divine unfolding. We know that, he, that later that day he walked and talked with Cleopas and Mary on the road to Emmaus and that they did not know him until he revealed himself in the breaking of bread. Mary thought that this man was the gardener and she spoke to him in one of the most poignant sentences that's to be found in all literature. She said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. See, she was still thinking in terms of a dead body. She'd been weeping for three days and three nights, and her heart was empty, even though she still had a few tears left. She was a frail woman. She had passed through unutterable anguish. She'd been up for hours, if not days, practically without sleep. She'd been three times out to the tomb and twice back to the town that night. And she offers to carry away the full weight, the dead weight of the body of a man, plus the linen clothes, plus the spices that had been wrapped in them. And John chapter 19 and verse 39 says there is a hundred pounds weight. Gives us the weight of the myrrh and the aloes which Nicodemus had brought and which were left wrapped in the linen cloth that surrounded the body. Now, even if Jesus were slight of weight, Mary was offering without thinking to carry away the weight, the dead weight of a body and linen clothes and ointments, which would be beyond the strength of many a man. But she did not think of this. Love does not stop to think of impossibilities. This is one of the proofs of the truth. Is this scene made up? Now, at this point, though the Bible doesn't say so, I can prove it, Mary turned around and turned her back on Christ and turned and faced and looked at the tomb once more. For when Christ first pronounced her name, her back was turned to him because afterwards it says she turned again. Now, she's not interested in someone that she thinks to be no more than the gardener. She's only interested in Christ. And this is why she turned her back on him Maybe sometimes when the Lord Jesus has come to you, you haven't known that it was Christ coming to you, and you've turned your back because you did not yet know what he was coming to do for you. How many times, oh, how many times it is that the Lord Jesus Christ has come to you in some form that, that you thought was terrible, and yet he came in love. Oh, someone might have said, this is tragedy, but it was not tragedy, it was triumph. And so Mary turned her back on the Lord Jesus when he was coming to reveal himself to her because she didn't think that he was coming in that way. How often do we in like manner misinterpret as dark what is really pregnant with light and we blindly attribute to them they have taken away, my Lord, what Jesus himself does. Now a tone of mind that is so remote from anticipation of the great fact is a precious proof of the historical truth of the resurrection. For in the mind of Mary, here was no soil in which hallucinations would spring. I say that because Ernest Renan said 
The passion of a hallucinated woman has given to the world a resurrected God. But this was not a mind ready to receive hallucinations. Psychologically, it's absurd to say that she suddenly could, in a hallucination, have imagined that she saw Christ. No, no. And the people to whom she witnessed would not have believed him risen unless they had seen him living. But you see, her clinging love needed more than an empty grave and folded clothes and waiting angels to stay its tears. And she turned indifferently and wearily away from the interruption of the question to plunge into her sorrow once more. Who can say anything about that transcendent recognition in which all the stooping love of the risen Lord is smelted into one word, and the burst of rapture and awe and astonishment and devotion that pours itself through the narrow channel of one other word. Mary, or a pony. And when she spoke, when he spoke her name, she turned back again. And this is how we know she turned away from the one that she thought was the gardener. But now her name had come into her heart on the lips of Jesus. Just as the right key slips easily into the one lock for which it is made, so the love of the Lord Jesus Christ has a key that fits exactly the lock of your need. And he speaks my name and your name to you, and he comes into our being. Oh, be very sure, be very sure that he knows you by name. Be very sure that the Lord God Almighty knows you by name. Rabboni. You see, her faith is raised from its death. Her hope is raised from its death. For here is the resurrection of faith and the resurrection of hope. But love had never been dead. Love has triumphed. And these three are once more abiding together, faith, hope, and love. The heart is full, and the greatest of these is love. Oh, let us learn this great fact that love does not die. And it contains the possibility, when touched by Jesus Christ, to bring life to dead hope and to dead faith. Christina Rossetti, a hundred years ago, wrote a hymn that so greatly describes without knowing it, what went on in the heart of Mary. None other lamb, none other name, none other hope in heaven or earth or sea, none other hiding place from guilt and shame, none beside thee. Listen, my faith burns low, my hope burns low, only my heart's desire cries out in me by the deep thunder of its want and woe cries out for thee. Lord, thou art life, though I be dead. Love's fire thou art, however cold I be. Nor heaven have I, nor place to lay my head, nor home, but thee. Now the final lesson in his appearance to Mary lies in the fact that he refused to accept that she should come on the basis of her old relationship. Those who lived before the time of the cross did not have the advantages that we had. Oh, it's a great and a joyous fact that we have a place after the resurrection of Christ that is altogether superior to that which men had before Christ died. Mary called him by the same name that she had known him during his physical life. And he had shown by calling her name 
that he was the same yesterday, today, and forever. His love never changes. But there must be growth in our love. We cannot hold his feet with earthly hands. We cannot know him in any earthly relationship. And so there was the prohibition, touch me not, I am not yet ascended. But in that prohibition, there is the charter of our new relationship to him. He says, touch me not, I'm not yet ascended. And this phrase encloses in itself, when I am ascended, you may touch me. And he is ascended today, and we may touch him. The Lord had begun on the throne of heaven, and he had come being in the form of God, and thought it not a thing to be grasped at, to be equal with God, but had emptied himself. And he had come down to the cross, and the road from the throne of God to the cross was in the sevenfold steps of humiliation. But the road back to the throne of God from the cross is in three steps. Resurrection, ascension, enthronement. He had gone down, 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 and now God brings him back. And we are in all three of these steps. Resurrection, ascension, enthronement. And today, today he calls you by your name. Today, he whispers of his love. Today, he tells us that he's approachable. And we conclude with Paul's statement in Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Let us pray. O God, our Father, we pray thee that thou shalt kindle our love, that we may know thee better, that we may love thee more, that we may, even when doubts come and our faith is dim, even when hope seems deceived, that we may maintain, because thou hast loved us, that we may love thee. For out of that love thou wilt yet bring faith and thou wilt yet bring hope. How we rejoice in the fact, Lord Jesus, that thou art alive. Thou art not restricted to a faraway heaven. By thy Holy Spirit thou art here. In a moment thou art going in each one of us equally. Thou art going out from here. And this afternoon we may say in our cars, in our homes, apartments, wherever we may be, Lord Jesus, thou art here, thou art here closer than feeling and nearer than hands and feet, calling us by name, lifting us to thyself, manifesting thy love. May no one go from here in this hour without realizing I am beloved of Christ. Here is our resurrection. And we give thee the praise in his name. Amen. We conclude the program with the hymn, None Other Lamb. Words by Christina Georgina Rossetti. In 1892, Rossetti wrote the poem in response to the opening of Revelation 5. None Other Lamb is the hymn Dr. Barnhouse references towards the end of his sermon.
You've been listening to Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.